Before we begin our lesson, I want to express my sincere appreciation to the congregation for the great support you gave at the gospel meeting last Monday night at Central. Preachers always look out at the audience, and the, I guess the audience doesn't think we see, but uh, I want to tell you, I believe that the congregation here comprised at least half of that audience. And uh, personally, I express my appreciation for you coming and being a part of that meeting and to encourage and support it. And by the way, this Wednesday will mark the date that I moved here 29 years ago. And we'll be starting my 30th year. I know that's really hard to believe, but I thought as Michael was standing waiting on the table this morning, he was three years old when we moved here. So you can see that it has been a while, and uh, we have changed a little bit, uh, hopefully not in doctrine, but maybe a little bit older and hopefully a little bit wiser. This morning, I want to direct your attention back to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin our reading in verse 20. We're going to cover through the end of the chapter. And this great Sermon on the Mount is such a powerful sermon. I realize it doesn't take very long if you're reading your Bible to read chapters 5, 6, and 7. But a person could certainly take time to look at each individual word and find so many nuggets of truth in it. I want to point out to begin with, the Lord did not hesitate to correct, to confront, and to correct teaching that had been misunderstood. Jesus was interested in trying to save people's souls. And the truth is that if you have bad teaching, that promotes bad behavior. Sometimes false teachers want to suggest, what difference does it make if you teach this or you teach that? But the truth is, if a person believes a false teaching, eventually they will begin to practice that false teaching. And when you begin to practice it, you begin to practice sin, and sin will keep a person from going to heaven. In contrast, sound teaching promotes healthy spiritual lives. If I understand the teaching of God's Word correctly and properly, then it helps me to make sure that I am living a good life. Well, Matthew 5, 20-48 will show how the common religious people of Jesus' day took that part of God's Word and abused it, misused it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at two things. We're going to look, first of all, at the definition of righteousness in verse 20. Then in verses 21 through 48, and I know you're saying that's a lot to cover, and it is, we're going to look at the distinction between what they were teaching and they were saying and what our Lord taught. Let's begin with verse 20 again, and notice with me as we go through these words here. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The key word here is the word righteousness. He's talking about your righteousness. He's talking about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, we could spend a lot of time in fact, if we were to choose to do so, the word righteousness itself 
has an extended study in the Bible, and there's a lot of benefit for it. But I simply want to begin by pointing out that the word justice usually is the word we use to denote the conformity to society's standards and norms of fairness. For instance, I don't know the details of what is occurring in Ferguson, Missouri right now. I've heard some details, but I don't know the truth, and I'm not investigated, so I'm not trying to present one side or the other, but I'm suggesting to you there's some people who believe fairness is an issue, and they believe justice is an issue. And sometimes the word that is used here, righteousness, is translated just, and generally when it is, it carries with it the idea of fairness among men. But the one word righteousness is the word that is used. It's talking about conforming to God's standards and God's will. How a man stands in relationship to God with his life. Well, Jesus used the word several times in this little small sermon, if you will call it that. If you'll back up with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's something that you can desire to have, that you can want to have. And if you desire it enough like hunger and thirst, you can have righteousness. If you go to verse 10, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is an objective body here that a person could be persecuted for. Someone else could see what you believe, what you teach, and what you practice. And they can then persecute you on the basis of that. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, he's going to use the word just. That you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He could have just as easily said, sent the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's the same original word. And then in verse 33 of chapter 6, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You seek God's righteousness. But I know that someone is right now thinking, well, I, I want to see it as it really is. And I think Paul does the best job of explaining it to us in Romans 1, 16 and 17, as well as chapter 10 and verse 3. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now listen to verse 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith into faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel reveals to us God's plan for righteousness. When I get to chapter 10 and verse 3, For they, talking about the Israelites, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. It's clear. It's obvious that the word here the Lord is describing is a way that a man approaches God according to God's will. And he says, your righteousness has to exceed 
their righteousness. But for just a moment before we go into this a little bit deeper, think with me about the scribes and the Pharisees. About their attitude toward God's word and their attitude toward their fellow man. They believed that they themselves were the authority. They believed they had the right to tell you what God's word means and in fact bind upon you those things which they teach. If you go to Matthew chapter 23 and verse 2, he had already talked about they bind heavy burdens on men's shoulders. They won't even lift one of their fingers to help. But he said the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They sit in Moses' seat. It's like a person said, well, I'm going to sit in the president's seat and I'm going to render judgments the way he does. Or I'm going to sit in the judge's chair and I'm going to render decisions as a judge does. They're trying to sit in Moses' seat and be the authority. And they're not. But you get back to chapter 7 and verse 29. In this passage, it says, For he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The problem was is the scribes had no authority. The authority was in the Word of God, not in those teachers. And that's the truth with any preacher today or any teacher today. The authority is not in what he says the authority is in the scriptures themselves and what they say. But Jesus, he did have authority. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. But he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? The term kingdom refers to the church. And in Matthew 4 verse 17, Jesus preached for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You get to chapter 6 and verse 10 and he's given them the model prayer and he says, your kingdom come. It had not come yet. You get further to chapter 6 and verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And only the obedient would be able to enter that kingdom. Matthew 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. How does one enter then? According to John 3 verse 5, Jesus teaching Nicodemus, he answered, Most assuredly I say to you that unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That means a person has to be baptized to enter the kingdom. I learned from studying John's gospel that the Pharisees rejected the will of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. They're, they're saying, we're going to do it our way. You read Matthew, 7 and, or Matthew 5 and verse 20. You come away with an appreciation of the fact that the Lord says... If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you want to go and be where God is, you are going to have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now look with me at verses 21 through 48. And in this section, the Lord draws a stark distinction 
between the scriptures and how they had been interpreted by those scribes and Pharisees and how he was teaching they ought to be understood. Now you, you think about the world we live in today. You can go out in front of our building and drive toward downtown and then circle around downtown and you'll find a number of different denominational churches. Churches that teach different doctrines, different interpretations of the Scripture. And what's a person do to throw up their hands and say, well, none of us can understand it? No, that's not the way to approach it. The thing to do is to see how the Bible interprets itself. Quite frequently you will have an Old Testament passage being interpreted by a New Testament writer. So you get to the idea, you say, I know how to understand the Bible now. I will do it like they did it. And so what will take place is the Lord will use six different instances where he will contrast, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, my initial plans were to take each of these six and preach an individual lesson upon them. But just like we did when we studied the Beatitudes, there's some value in seeing them together as a group. And sometimes if you slow down too slow, you miss the big picture. It's almost like you've got a large picture on the wall and there's some interesting detail inside of that picture and you may concentrate on that and lose the rest of the picture. So I want us to look at this as a whole. We're going to go through them very quickly individually so we can appreciate what the Lord is doing here. Look with me at verses 21 through 26. You have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now there's more to that, but I want to point out to you. They had gone back to the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13 where Moses records the words of the Lord, you shall do no murder, you shall not murder. And they had interpreted that to say that's the drawing line. Anything short of murder is okay. And so if I want to hate you, I want to mistreat you, that's okay as long as I don't kill you. Notice how Jesus contrasts that. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger. You know Psalm 37 verse 8 says, Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, it only causes harm. I don't think we realize sometimes being angry at somebody consumes us. It hurts us. And it hurts them. Angry words that are spoken. He uses one which we really don't 
grasp very well. It's the word reka. It is perhaps most closely interpreted by our English word stupid. Any of your mothers ever tell you don't call your brother or sister stupid? They were trying to tell you what the Bible says. Then you call them a fool, which means empty-headed, senseless, dull. And Jesus said, you say those words, and you're going to be in danger of hell fire. What? When you say those words and mean them, what you are doing is you are denigrating and lowering the value of that other person's life. And put yourself in danger of hellfire. So what's the Lord's solution to this? He offers one. He said, if you know that you're going to worship and some one of your brother has an ought, he has a fault against you, he says, first leave your gift there at the altar, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And he says, agree with your adversary quickly. There is some immediacy here to take care of deep-seated hostilities and do it quickly. You know, one of the problems that happens is if there is a controversy between brethren and it's not resolved soon, it becomes deep-seated. It becomes anger. It becomes hostility. It becomes malice. And Jesus has said, you thought all you had to worry about was not to murder I'm telling you not to worry, to not only worry about murder, I'm telling you to step back from that. Worry about anger as well. Look with me now at verses 27 through 30. You have heard it said of, that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than your whole body should be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable that one of your members should perish than your whole body should be cast into hell. Just like with murder... You go back to Exodus 20 and verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Here's what's in people's minds. As long as I don't commit the sexual act, flirting is fine. As long as I don't get in bed with them, I can have some friendly relations with them. No. That's the way our world thinks today. Everybody thinks that everything short of that's all right. And that's the reason why we've got such a problem with adultery today. Because people don't grasp that. Jesus says looking to lust brings desire to the heart. James tells us that lust, when it is conceived, brings forth sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We have this idea that somehow we can stop short of a particular sin and it'll be all right. And so our Lord says you seek to prevent the potential punishment. 
If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And just like he said with regards to the murder, he's talking about hell. You think you're worried about murder, you need to be worried about anger. You're worried about adultery, you need to be worried about lust. It's no accident that the Lord brings next in the list divorce. If you have adultery, divorce is generally going to be not far behind. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality or except for fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries the woman who divorces commits adultery. The passage to which this alludes is Deuteronomy chapter 24 and following. Verse 1 says simply, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. He goes on to say that if that woman were to marry someone else and then he put her away, she can't go back to that first one. And what was taking place is they were trying to limit the rampant swapping of wives. Trying to limit this divorce where people were just coming and going. But you know what? In the first century, there were rabbis who had taken this passage and said the uncleanness is something so simple as if she burns the toast. To the point where it was easy divorce. The first century is exactly like the 21st century. If a couple does not want to be married, they can go find them a lawyer, go to the courthouse, get a no-fault or irreconcilable differences divorce, and walk away. Jesus tightened what had been loosened by man. See, man had this idea of just anything. And Jesus said, no, that's not the way it is. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, deals with it more directly when he says, the Pharisees also came to him testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason... Shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and they two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together let not man separate. For I say to you whoever divorces his wife except for fornication and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. See Jesus pointed out You've got to go back and look at God's intent for marriage. And it was for one man and one woman, and it was for life. But you see, there are interpretations. It said, well, if you don't like your wife, give her a certificate of divorce and send her out. And Jesus corrects that idea.
You get to verses 33 through 37. And again, you have heard it said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, whatever is more than these, is of the evil one. You see, the scripture was pretty clear. The scriptures was clear about by whom you would swear and how wrong it was to swear falsely by God's name. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear the name of the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. In other words, when you're going to take an oath, Jewish people, you don't take the name of another God. You take God's name, the one whom you reverence, the one whom you respect, the one whom you fear. Leviticus 19.12 says, And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor profane the name of the Lord uh, your God, I am the Lord. Numbers 30 verse 2 talks about a man entering an agreement and making a vow. A person might say, well, what's the Lord talking about? Some had developed a clever ploy in the first century. Over years, the elders had devised this sort of game that if you said, I swear by this, it's binding, but if you swear by something else, it's not binding. I know those of you who are, remember your childhood, at least I remember it vividly in my childhood, you crossed your fingers when you said something, you didn't have to do it. You could say, I'll give you my pixie stick for your candy bar, and they'd hand you the candy bar, and they'd say, all right, give me the pixie stick. No, 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 I had my fingers crossed. You mean you didn't mean it? I had my fingers crossed. Listen to Matthew 23. I could go through a lot of this, but I just want to pull this out so you can see. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold of the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it is obliged to perform it. You see, they developed that little game. And the Lord is saying, what you are doing is not right. What you are doing is swearing by holy things, by God's name, and you're lying. And he says, when you get beyond your yes and no, you've gotten into the category of the evil one. Retaliation. Look with me now at verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. 
And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow, do not turn away. Now, before I actually notice what they were doing, ask yourself. You come in to visit here in the church building, and as a frequent happening takes place, someone comes in and says, I'm out of gas in my car. Can you give me $20 to go buy me gas? Is the Lord in this passage suggesting that if that man asks, you've got to give it to him? Can you loan me $20 until my check comes in? I used to say until payday. That's not what they say anymore. Until my check comes in. Is Jesus saying you've got to give that person that money? You see, the scripture had been commandeered to support something that was never intended. The eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth, was not a justification for personal retaliation. And you've got to see all of this together as, as one package. In Leviticus chapter 19, or 24, verse 19, if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, shall be done to him. Fracture for act, fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and if he's called disfigurement of a man, so that it shall be done to him. And whoever kills a man, kills an animal, shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one who is from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy, he makes it clear that this is not where I choose myself. You have to go to the priest, and the priest function as a judge. It's a judicial matter. You don't try to right the wrongs. He says if a man slaps you or smites you on the cheek, which was an act of an insult, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 30, along with being sued, along with being compelled to carry a soldier's pack, along with a request for a loan or a gift. How do you respond to these people? Do you treat the evil man badly? I think the best commentary was by Paul in Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat coals of fire upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What he is suggesting is when people mistreat you, not to mistreat them back, do good to them in return. The final thing is in verses 43 through 48. Again, we won't be able to read it all, but I want you to notice with me this first section. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, do you love your enemies? Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Just like they had commandeered the passage on retaliation, 
they commandeered this passage and they had taken it to say something that it was never intended. In Leviticus chapter 19, the latter part of that verse says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. They'd say, God said, love my neighbor, but he didn't say I had to love my enemy so I can hate my enemy. You know, that's taking something that was neither implied nor stated. They had modified it to suit their own actions. But I want to point out to you, the Old Testament did not teach hatred of one's enemies. In fact, Exodus chapter 23 when he's giving various laws about how you deal with your neighbors and with your enemies. He said, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You don't say he's my enemy and I can treat him however I want to and I'm not going to help him. He said, no, you do help him. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. You don't mistreat your enemy. You love him like you want him to love you. And God is the perfect example. He goes on to say, if you love those who love you, what's your reward? Even the tax collectors do that. He said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, when I take those six things together now, I see what was going on. People had interpreted God's will to suit the way they wanted to live rather than letting God's word shape them to be like God wanted them to be. And Jesus raised the bar of how a Christian will live. We don't say the same things that the worldly people say. We don't do the things that the worldly people do. It's a higher calling. And this religion must permeate every facet of our life. Whether it's how we treat our neighbor, how we treat our spouses, how we treat our God. You can choose a better life and a better future. You see, what the Lord was talking about here is, I say unto you, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I've got to believe. I really do. I've got to believe there are some here this morning who have not yet become a Christian and you know what you need to do. You're convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I don't know what's been the hold back, what's been maybe on your mind or in your thoughts. I wish there was some way I could persuade you of the value of your making that commitment this morning. That you would come forward when we sing the invitation song and say, I want to be a New Testament Christian. To confess that faith before others and then be baptized. You know, I, I'm so amazed this past week. All these people have been pouring cold water over their heads for this ALS challenge. And how many people are refusing to be baptized?
to go in the water for the remission of their sins. It's possible this morning you're also a Christian living with sin in your life. Don't be a scribe. Don't be a Pharisee and say, it doesn't matter. I can live how I want. Come back to the Lord and ask for His forgiveness. Would you come while we stand inside?